You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Genesis 1 through 11 takes us to the origins of all things. It uh, takes us to the origin of creation, to the origin of humanity, uh, to the origins of sin and temptation, to the origins of God's design for, for marriage and, and for his plan for humanity. Um, and, and it shows us both what God uh, made us to be as well as what's wrong with us and the hope of what God is going to do uh, to fix it and how we play a part in it. Um, and today, when we come to, to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be uh, taking Genesis 1, as uh, Bryce read, verses 26 through 28, and then Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25, uh, really looking at God's design for humanity, looking at uh, what it means for us to be human beings. And this question uh, that has uh, pervaded uh, human society and culture since the beginning, this question of who are we? Who am I? Uh, to make it more personal, uh, is a fo- foundational and fundamental question that we all ask or subconsciously have beliefs about, maybe without intentionally asking that question. We have some conception of who we are, why we're here, um, what we're made for, uh, or what we're supposed to be doing with our life, or the absence of those things create at times, uh, some very unsettling experiences in our lives, right? When we struggle to understand who we are uh, and what we're doing here. Uh, so today, what I want us to see as we think about God's design for humanity um, is, is this, this idea. Uh, and I've kind of taken this and adapted it from, um, from a, another author uh, in a systematic theology who said, we are defined by who God created us to be. And what God in Christ has done to redeem us and bring us back to himself. So we're defined by who God created us to be, which we're going to look at today. And what God in Christ has done to bring us, to redeem us and bring us back to himself. So we see, uh, as, as you saw last week in Colossians 1, creation and redemption uh, together uh, in in the scriptures. Um, and so we're going to be uh, looking primarily at Genesis 2, but starting in Genesis uh, 1, uh, verses 26 through 28. But before I do, I want to kind of help situate ourselves in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, so we, we looked at Genesis 1 last week and uh, what it tells us about, uh, about God as our creator and some foundational truths uh, regarding creation. Some foundational truths to help us understand uh, God as creator and, and his creation. Um, and, it, and it raises the question when we get to Genesis 2, uh, in some ways it's going to repeat some of the information that we got in summary form in verses 26 through 28. In 26 through 28 of chapter 1, we're told that God created man in his own image. Uh, in male and female, he created them and he made them and, and gave them this mandate to uh, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them. And, and we have this summary form about humanity. Uh, and then chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, we get this further in-depth view of what God says and how God specifically worked in creating man and woman. So Genesis 1, um, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, gives us an overview of God, uh, God's work of creating the heavens and the earth, including the climactic creation of humanity uh, on day six in his image with the task of ruling over his creation. That's what Genesis 1 shows us. Um, <clears throat> in Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25, is going to zoom in to God's creation of humanity by specifically looking at humanity's first parents, Adam and Eve, their placement in the Garden of Eden, and God's task and calling upon them and by extension upon all of humanity. So Genesis 1 and 2 are working together, uh, and and particularly in verse 2, we're getting this zoomed-in view of God creating Adam and Eve, their placement in the garden, and and God's calling upon them. Uh, And interestingly, when you look at chapter 2, verse 4, you see this statement, "...these are the generations." These are the generations, it says, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
This statement or this word is in the in the Hebrew is toledot, uh, which means generations or offspring. It's going to give a structure for the entirety of the book of Genesis. Um, and, and you're going to see if we're if we're able to get um, our our slides up today. Uh, if not, we'll send these out for you. Um, but you're going to see a breakdown, really, of how Genesis is structured. And, and this phrase, the generations of, is going to be the key indicator of when you have breaks in the creation. So the generations of the heavens and the earth, verses chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 4, verse 26. Then it's going to switch to the generations of Adam, starting in chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 8. It's going to go through the generation of Noah, his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the generations of Shem, uh, of Terah, who is the father of Abram, who becomes Abraham, who is the, uh, the, the father of Israel, uh, the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac. These are the children of Abraham. And then the generations of Esau and ultimately the largest chunk uh, is going to come at the end, starting in Ch- Genesis 37, all the way through the end of chapter 50, the generations of Jacob. So this phrase is going to give structure to the entirety of the book. It's an indicator that Genesis 1, 1, 2 through 3 is this introduction of what God did. It's, a, it's introducing God as the creator, the, the primary actor in, in all of Scripture and in the act of creation. And then it's going to unpack for us how history has unfolded. And Genesis and, and, and Genesis with the rest of the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, is given to Israel as they're coming out of Egypt to inform them of who it is that just redeemed them and what it means to be his people. Uh, who is their God and what does it mean to be his people? And so it's, it's shaping for them where they've come from. Uh, this is their history. This is their story. And it's not only their story, but ultimately it's all of our story. Uh, it's the true story of the whole world is what Genesis 1 through 11 unpacks. And, and we see this structuring uh, in such a way that it's telling us where their roots are, where our roots are as well. And so Genesis is the account of creation in Genesis and is in one hand familiar to the ancient Near East culture. Uh, there are creation accounts in, uh, in Genesis uh, or in the ancient Near East, and you may be familiar with some of them, the Numa Elish, uh, other accounts from the uh, Canaanites and uh, in the Mesopotamian region uh, that account for how the world was created and uh, most of those accounts, pretty much all of those accounts are polytheistic where the gods are creating something out of chaos, creating humanity. Humanity in some ways has this subjugation and this God has a capricious relationship with humanity in which if they do wrong, if they do things, he spites them. And, uh, and, and there's a number of different pieces that, um, that, that you see that speak in some ways to some of the same realities that Genesis is speaking about. Um, that uh, there is this uh, account for creation, this account for humanity's place in creation, but Genesis is unique. And I love how this, uh, this author said it. The main contrast has to do with the identity and the nature of the creator. The biblical account presents one God who alone is God who created the world. And this one God created unopposed. There was no battle royale uh, in, in the, the creation uh, of the world, according to Genesis. There was, there was no competing interest of Tiamat and Marduk battling it out, trying to figure out what happens if they split open, you know, uh, uh, cr- this created thing and out comes humanity. There's, there's, no, there's no battle going on. God alone is creator. He creates unopposed. The Mesopotamian and related Canaanites accounts of the cosmos of the world came into existence by conflict. But Genesis tells us that conflict is introduced into the world not by the gods, but by humanity's rebellion against the one true God. Uh, That's what stands out in the book of Genesis and takes us to the heart as we look at who we are, as, as we reminded ourselves last week in Genesis 1, who we are must be understood in reference to who God is. Um, and, and so that takes us to, uh, to the heart of Genesis uh, 2. But one other kind of piece of uh, introductory matter that I think is important that I've been uh, reflecting on as, as a result of uh, going through Genesis 
um, is this question of, of historical, uh, the historical nature of the Genesis account. Um, and uh, as, as I sit in this room and as you do, knowing uh, the context in which we've come th- through, if you've gone through any uh, university context as it relates to science and, uh, and its uh, account of things, you're, you're, you're probably conditioned to look at Genesis uh, with skepticism. Uh, if not an outright just dismissal of it being irrelevant uh, to the uh, the figuring out of, of how things are in the world and the why they are the way that they are. Um, and, and I think it's important for us as, as God's people uh, that we stand on the true and trustworthy nature of God's word uh, and that we're committed to looking at what God's word has to say about these things rather than fitting God's word into whatever preconceived notion or other system of thought uh, that we may bring to it. And, and I just want to unpack this because I think it's a helpful um, for us to understand. Is, is Genesis 1 through 3 historical? And really, you could broaden that out to say all of 1 through 11, but 1 through 3 often get the most focus because they have the elements that sometimes uh, uh, seem most out of step with our common, um, with our common uh, understanding of things. Helpful to realize that it once was also out of step to believe uh, that the earth rotated around the sun uh, rather than the, the other way around. And, and so as we, we understand these things, we, we want to we press into them to ask the question, is Genesis 1 through 3 historical? And a lot of this has to do with the, the literary nature of Genesis 1 and 3. Is it, is it poetic? Therefore, uh, is it uh, is supposed to be taken in a non-literal way or is it giving a historical account? Is it prose in nature? I think the best way to answer that is Genesis 1 is stylized prose. It's not accurate to describe it as totally being poetic, though it has poetic elements. It's stylized prose that's written in such a way to speak to undergirding historical truths. Um, And part of this we see based on the structure that we just unfolded, that Genesis is giving you account of the generations of. It's particularly uh, concerned with how history has unfolded. It's not a scientific textbook, but it is given in such a way that it's telling us how things unfolded from Adam, ultimately up to Abraham, and then through Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob, and through Joseph, and all of these things matter because it's leading somewhere. That these things aren't just floating out there uh, for us to, to kind of Aesop's fable it with and draw stories however we would like from it. Uh, but they're written in such a way uh, to help us uh, to, um, to, to understand these, these matters uh, as it relates uh, to God's account of the world and the historical truth that undergirds that. And so uh, I think as you read Genesis 1 through 3, I think it does present itself as historical in nature in light of some of the things I've just said. I love um, one uh, theologian, New Testament scholar, Michael Bird. A solid first name, uh, probably one of the funniest theologians that you'll read. Uh, he's from Australia. Um, and, and so uh, in Genesis 1 through 3, he says, has, point, has the poignancy and penetration as historically rooted narrative of the historical beginnings. And he says, even works of literary or, metaphor, or, or that are metaphorical in nature still have historical reference at their core. So even if someone were to even take something to say that there's some metaphorical message here, that having a historical reference at its core is central. And he says, The story of Adam and Eve is not a pre-scientific fable or a pious fiction of human origins. Rather, it's a theologically embedded fable a story Excuse me, of God's creation of the human race. A story with characters as real as the earth they stand on, and yet they stand for more than being our primal parents, as their own story testifies to the creative power of God over the world of human beings and explains how God's perfect paradise ultimately went wrong. Um, so these things uh, in Genesis 1 through 3 are presented as historical truth over myth. The genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 are telling us that this isn't merely mythical in nature. This isn't merely metaphorical in nature. These are real people that have real connections to a real Adam and a real Eve and their descendants that come after them. Uh, the, the image and the, the idea of an offspring that is traced from Genesis 3 uh, all the way through the rest of the Bible isn't a metaphorical in nature. It's rooted in the historical fact, and that historical fact takes us all the way to a real flesh and blood Jewish Jesus who was born in Bethlehem and who died outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, and they were buried in a rich man's 
tomb, and on the third day that tomb was empty, and that, that Jesus who was in the tomb is now seated on the throne. These things aren't, aren't just propping up to, to encourage us with an idea. Our faith is grounded in the historical reality of these things. And Genesis uh, shows us in these genealogies, it speaks to that reality. Jesus takes Genesis 1 through 2 to be historical when he talks um, about how God, as he relates to marriage in Matthew 19, that God made them male and female, and the husband shall leave his family and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. He looks to Genesis uh, 1 and 2 as, as truth, as historical truth. Paul takes Genesis 1 through 2 to be historical. Uh, you see it says in Acts 17, 26, that God created everyone from uh, the same parents, and, uh, and now we move about on the earth, it says in Acts 17, 26. 1 Corinthians 11, he speaks of God's design for male and female. And uh, we see him taking the Genesis account of an Adam and Eve historical. And ultimately, what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection is tied to understanding a historical Adam. In Romans 5, it speaks of the first Adam bringing about through his disobedience death and the second Adam, Jesus, bringing about through his obedience righteousness in Christ. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that in the first Adam we have all died, but in the second Adam we will all be made alive and live forever. Uh, These realities of Jesus' death and resurrection are contrasted with a historical fallen Adam. Adam is the universal source of death. Christ is the universal source of life. What Adam lost through his disobedience, Christ has more than regained through his life, death, and resurrection. And Michael Byrd that theologian I mentioned earlier says, if there was never an original Adam, there was never original sin. And if there was never original sin, that puts Jesus in the realm of the unemployed because Jesus came to redeem sinners. And he redeemed sinners through his death on the cross, reversing what came into being through the first Adam's disobedience, restoring it through the second Adam. Second Adam's obedience. So as we look at Genesis 1 through 3, I'm going to side with Jesus and go with it being historical. But I believe it also presents itself to us as grounded in historical truth to help us understand who we are, why God's made us, and what we're here for. And that's, that's what I want us to see. I want us to see six things related to God's design for humanity. The first is that we're made by design. Genesis 1 26 through 28, as Bryce was reading, <clears throat> uh, it, comes, uh, it comes with somewhat of a, um, uh, a shift in the, the flow of Genesis chapter 1. We see, uh, and God said uh, throughout uh, Genesis 1, we'll see, God said, let there be light, and there was. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it was. And it goes on and on. And God said, let there be. God said, let there be. Then you come to verse 26, and it says, then God said, let us make man. There's, there's, a, there's a break, uh, and that break is important. It's the same word, if you, if you kind of recall from two weeks ago, if you weren't here, we talked about how there are two different words for create uh, in Hebrew, and one of them has the idea of creating out of nothing. In Genesis 1, when it says, God created the heavens and the earth, what's unique about God as creator is he creates from nothing by the power of his word, is what scripture teaches. It also talks about how things can be fashioned, made from what is already existing, fashioned into being. Um, and, and there's a sense in which we reflect God as created, as, uh, in being creative by forming and fashioning things with what God has created out of nothing. We form and fashion those things uh, into to what they are uh, today. Uh, but here it goes back to that very same word, and it says God created, God speaks. And we're ultimately going to see in Genesis 2 how God's, God's speaking, bringing into being and his forming, how they work together in beautiful symphony because it's going to say he takes uh, the dust of the earth and forms man and breathes life into man. And we'll look at the importance of that here in a minute. But we see in this that we're made by design and this design is reflected in, in, in verse 26 when God says, let us make man. And what's further unique is he says, let's make man in our image. We'll look at that here in a minute. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
we see that we're made by design. God is the creator. Everything else is the creation. That's fundamentally what's important as we look at Genesis uh, is it's saying everything else is creation, including human beings. God is the creator. But in God's creative economy, humanity is at the pinnacle, is the climax of that creative order. It's saved until the end, and it's unique in every way. And Psalm 8 uh, if you look over at the psalmist as they reflect on uh, what it means to be uh, human beings, uh, it doesn't speak specifically here of being made in the image of God, but it, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. There's a humility. God creator, we're the creation. What is man? But look down uh, in verse um, in verse six, it says, or verse five, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You think the psalmist knew Genesis one? You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, all these things, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The creation of humanity speaks to the glory of God, just as the heavens, just as the, the sun setting uh, in the west speaks of God's glory. So when you look at human beings, it speaks of the glory of God because he made us by design. Psalm 139 says, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God has created us by design. Now that flies in the face of a um, primarily humanistic um, uh, evolutionary framework. And <clears throat> I love this thought as it challenges Genesis, just like it challenges us today, it challenged uh, Israel as they came out of Egypt. It wasn't the gods that made them, it was the one true God. It's not a capricious God. It's a sovereign, good, and wise God. Uh, and the same is true for us today. We, we weren't made by accident. We weren't incidental to the, uh, the firing of atoms and neutrons and things coming together in this world. We were made by design by a personal God. And Michael Bird says, It's truly a cruel irony of human existence that humans have so evolved to a point of such cerebral complexity where they are able to understand and enjoy the universe and love others and even create works of beauty only to learn that all their emotion and energy are nothing more than an evolutionary mechanism designed to enhance their survival by tricking them into thinking that who they are and what they do actually matter. These pitiable creatures reach the precipice of knowledge only to learn that all knowledge is void of any truth and value other than what we create for ourselves. That, that isn't just a cheeky you know, critique of the evolutionary uh, humanistic mindset. That is indeed what we have to say. Remember the beginning uh, as we look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. Here's my challenge to you. Look at the world. Look at yourself. What better explains it? An accidental impersonal beginning or an intentional personal beginning? What explains who we are as human beings? An accidental impersonal beginning or an intentional personal beginning? What explains uh, the desires of our heart and the longings we have for community, for purpose, for meaning? Evolutionary bio, a process, a mechanism that's led us to this point only to realize that uh, we are whatever we make ourselves to be? Or coming to the point of recognizing that we have a creator and that creator made us to know him and enjoy him and that creator has given us shape to how we're to understand our purpose in this life. That's what Genesis is pressing upon us, that we're made by design. And then secondly, we're made in the image of God. <clears throat> you can see my points are very original here. Um, <clears throat> Genesis 1, uh, 26 again, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He repeats it again in verse 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. 
And this idea of the image of God perseveres even through, through the fall that we're going to look at in a few weeks. Because after uh, this, we look at um, <clears throat> Genesis 5 where it talks about how humanity is made in the image of God. So to take the life of a human being um, <clears throat> requires uh, in kind judgment. Uh, we see even after the flood in Noah, we see the reiterating that God's made man in his image and has given them this responsibility to uh, subdue and have dominion over the earth. This endures even the fall, even sin, that we're made in the image of God. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? <clears throat> well, there's a lot uh, that goes into this, and there are different kind of categories that people think through this, and I'm going to give you these uh, official categories and, and then tell you what the right one is. But um, <clears throat> people basically break it down in this way. It's either uh, who we are ontologically in our, in our essence, a substantive view, that it has something to do with some quality or characteristic of humanity. A lot of people point to uh, rationality or reason uh, being what grounds us in the image of God, the ability to think for ourselves and reason. Uh, some people that could be questioned, right? You know, um, <clears throat> but uh, that, that is what some people uh, look to the substantive view. Others speak of the relational view, our capacity for relationships with God and with others. The fact that it says that he created them in his own image, male and female, he created them. It shows them the, the idea of being made uh, for relationships with others as well as with God. And then there's the functional dynamic that flowing out of being made in the image of God is the task of being fruitful and multiplying. Be fruitful and multiply, he says. So there's something that we're to do. We have this task of ruling over uh, the earth, having dominion over creation. And as I think about those three views, my answer to which one is correct is yes uh, to all of them uh, in this way. Uh, and I think this is why we have all of these that, that people kind of wrestle with. Which, ones, which thing is being emphasized more? Nobody disagrees with any of those three. They're saying what's being emphasized when we talk about the image of God. Um, and I think it's, it's that being made in the image of God is best to be understood holistically and, and honestly approached with somewhat of a, you know, a mystery. Not that we don't know, but the sense of awe that God has made us. Like the psalmist in Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, that you've made us and, and given us this task? It's amazing. Uh, but we're made for the capacity, with the capacity to know and worship God. And that does stand indistinct even from the angels. In 1 Peter 1, it says the angels longed to look into the things of redemption, into the things of salvation. Even though they were there when God created and they rejoiced in God's creation, uh, it says in Job, as he's creating, they've somehow come into being and rejoicing in his creative work. Um, <clears throat> indeed, the, the angels are his creation themselves as well. But they don't know and enjoy God in the same way that human beings are made to know and enjoy God. But also to know and enjoy God requires certain substantive functions like rationality and reason on some measure. And knowing God also entails knowing his purpose for us, which is reflected in this uh, functional view of, of having dominion over creation. This, um, <clears throat> this charge to subdue the earth and give this spiritual service to God and humanity. So I think it kind of brings all of these things together. But at its core, I think the primary emphasis is the capacity for relationship with God and with one another, as well as even with the created order that requires being distinct in our substantive functions like reason and ability and morality and all of these things, as well as this, this function or this purpose that God has given us uh, to subdue and have dominion over the earth. <clears throat> And, and here's, here's what I, I think is important for us to understand as we think about the image of God as its relevance to, to our lives today. To be made in the image of God is the basis for human dignity. Really, without the image of God, at best you can say that treating people with dignity is um, it, it's, it's good for us to do because it increases our uh, ability to survive. That's about the best argument you have for why you should treat people with dignity. And in all reality, if survival of the fittest is true, then you shouldn't treat all people with dignity because some people get in your way of fulfilling what you want to do. And it is not efficient to care for some people, like those who can't care for themselves or who don't have the ability to fully function in society. It would be better to get rid of them in order to advance. And we know that's not the case, not only because it's just not good 
to do. It's not nice to do, but because it, it violates the fundamental principle of being made in the image of God, that every single person, no matter who they are, is made with human dignity, as well as it's not only the basis for human dignity, but it's the basis for human rights. For these things that are evident that there is a creator and he's entrusted these things to us. I don't have time to unpack all of this, but uh, one of the most powerful ways I've heard this uh, uh, explained is by Tim Keller addressing parliament in England. He was invited to speak to the um, to the parliament on the topic of what Christianity offers British society today. Um, I think you can parse out that the same thing would be true for an American society. Um, and after all, we did beat them. Uh, and so, you know, it's true for us as well, right? Um, but uh, the, the, the real point is, listen, look up. Tim Keller addresses Parliament as he unpacks what Christianity offers our society today. And at its core is human dignity and human rights grounded in the image of God. We are made in the image of God, and from that flows everything else. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to one, one day may be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as, now, uh, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He says, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations, being who God designed us to be, uh, either in eternity with God or eternity separated from God. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, um, <clears throat> it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There's a word. It is... Uh, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors in relation to the way that we treat one another because we're made in the image of God. As one of my favorite theologians, Francis Schaeffer, says, there are no little people in the eyes of God. And what challenges us is who are the little people in our lives? Who are the people, I'm not talking about children, I'm not talking about vertically challenged folks, right? Who are the people that you look on as being little? And God says, I made them in my image. And if you were to meet them in the future in glory, you might be tempted to fall down and worship them because who God has made us to be as a reflection of his glory, what, what maybe we only see dully and in part now we will one day see fully, he says we, we, we are always in all that we do, joking, working, married, snubbing, exploiting, talking with immortals made in the image of God. It should, should humble us as we think about interacting with others. And, and I, I mentioned earlier that as we understand who we are, it's who God created us to be and what God in Christ has done to redeem us and bring us back to himself. And isn't this interesting? Pastor Chris kind of brought this out last week as we, we see the preeminence of Christ in creation. It's, it's Jesus in the New Testament who's presented as the image of God. Colossians 3.10 talks about how we put on the new self and we're being renewed in the knowledge uh, after the image of our creator. And it's in 2 Corinthians 3.16, as we, it says, as we behold the Lord, we're being transformed into that image progressively. Uh, and the image of God, is, it says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the image of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus is the ultimate, exact image of God. And, and what God made us to be, affected by the fall and by sin, is being redeemed and renewed and restored as we come to Christ. And God's purposes and design for humanity now ultimately follow through the gate of Jesus. As we, be, as we know him, we become progressively more and more who God has made us to be. And one day we will fully be made into his image. And then uh, that brings us uh, to, um, uh, to the, the third point, that we're created male and female. We're created male and female. It says this in, in Genesis uh, 26 through 28. And then as we get to chapter 2, uh, verse 4, we have that break. The creations of the heavens and the earth as they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, it begins to unpack that. It talks about how in the garden there was 
uh, that when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Mist was coming up. Um, uh, mist was coming up from the ground and watering the whole face of the ground. And then it says this in verse seven. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Underneath this reality of being made male and female is that we are made body and soul. We are embodied creatures. Material and immaterial goes into how God has formed us. And this is foundational understanding, I think, who we are as humanity. We are more than our biological sex, but our biological sex is not incidental to who God has made us to be because he's made us with body and with soul, with material and immaterial. And, and this has constantly been um, what makes Christianity unique as it speaks to humanity. You go all the way back in the beginning to, uh, to, uh, to Platonic ideas and to Gnosticism in the, in the first centuries of the church. The primary understanding was that there is, a, uh, there is a divide, a separation between the material and the immaterial. And we are often trying to escape the material to get to the immaterial. It's what's inside us that's most important. And the shell on what's outside can be done away with. And this is also what undergirds Eastern thought and Hinduism and Buddhism. And ironically, it's what undergirds pop culture today that says the immaterial and material are divided. Immaterial is more highly valued. The real you What's most important is on the inside of you. You need to discover what's on the inside of you, not embrace the reality of what's given on the outside of you. Um, but what's on the inside is most important, and therefore the outside is either negligible or even corrupt or in need of refashioning according to our design. And the goal is to get to the real you, what's inside, even if that means changing what's on the outside. This has been true since uh, the early thoughts of Platonism all the way through Gnosticism and, uh, and all the way up to today. <clears throat> but God says we're embodied, that our bodies are good, that we're made material and immaterial, and that he's made us equally yet different, intentional, and yet not interchangeable, male and female. He made us. Now, as we unpack this, <clears throat> there's, there's a whole lot of significance that this has as it talks in Genesis 2 about the sameness of male and female being made in the image of God, full of equal worth and dignity, full of the equal calling to subdue and have dominion over the creation. That's not just men, that's men and women. Equal in all of these ways, same in all of these ways, and yet different in how they're made. Adam's formed from the ground, and it says in verse 18 that Eve, uh, starting in verse 19, is formed from the side uh, of Adam and is a helper fit for him. There's, uh, there's contrasting roles that are played out in Genesis that will be unpacked in the rest of the Bible, that there's a difference, and yet sameness. And then we see foundationally that there's also union between man and woman and marriage in Genesis 2, 24 through 25. They just weren't made to be together, but they were made to be one together. And this foundational reality of marriage that we'll come back to uh, in a few weeks, <clears throat> it speaks to our, our given, the givenness of, of God making us as embodied human beings. And I think this is as of fundamental importance today as it was then to embrace and understand the goodness of God's design for us while at the same time, which we'll unpack in a few weeks, the reality of living in a fallen world when what God made as good isn't experienced as good by us and our perception of our embodied nature as male and female isn't always according to what God has given it to us to be. And we struggle sometimes identifying what our biological sex is and our understanding of gender is according to the Bible. Those two things go together. Our gender is grounded in our biology uh, and yet in a fallen world, we often struggle to understand these things and it's difficult and there's need for um, <clears throat> there's need for conversation and compassion. They're not ever just issues. We're talking always about people made in God's image, embodied people wrestling with these things. So we have to understand them in that way. And, and as the church, particularly, we have to be faithful to continually wrestle with what God's word says and, and be faithful to what God's word says while loving and walking through difficult issues with everyone. It's just true for our children as well as for all adults. 
And I think in society, it's, as well as in the church, it's important for us. And Andrew Walker, his book, God and the Transgender Debate, a book that I would highly recommend to you, particularly uh, for those who have parents, who are parents with little kids, as well as for anyone uh, who's thinking about uh, this topic, which I don't know how you can not think about it as it's constantly before us, um, <clears throat> whether in uh, sometimes shocking ways, according to Dave Chappelle's stuff on Netflix, or, uh, or just the, uh, the, the coming and going of relationships in our life. These things are before us. God's word has something to say about it. We should care about it. Um, Andrew Walker's book, I think, is helpful. Uh, he says, though, as a, as a caution to us, Christians must never fail to obey all that God says about gender. But equally, Christians should never go beyond what he says. When we do, we obscure what God really does say, and we have no right to complain when people misunderstand what the Bible says or reject biblical teaching. He says primarily, uh, he says we should put it this way, speaking of uh, how we care for our sons or our daughters, if we put... um, Let me say this as a description. Basically, he's saying that we have taken gender stereotypes often of what's broadly accepted in culture, and sometimes we elevate them so highly uh, that that it makes it difficult uh, for people to understand what God's actually saying about how God's made us as male and female. Sometimes we think, well, if a boy likes girl things, then, well, maybe, maybe there's room. Maybe he's identifying in that way. If a girl likes boy things, maybe they're identifying in that way. And we go so far as to teach gender fluidity even to children and, and, and thinking that these things are up to us to figure out. Remember, inside, the real you, figure that out. The outside is negligible at best. God says, no, we're made embodied. Uh, but sometimes we can go so far to elevate those things which may not be true. Not all men like to hunt. I've never gone hunting in my life. I don't think I've ever successfully shot anybody except in laser tag, which I'm pretty killer at. And when the new one opens across the street, we can go at it. But other than that, I've never killed anything other than the snake with my shovel. And my daughter made me apologize. And I did, right? Like, I'm not that. I'm not that guy. I like to think I have athletic ability. But if you actually saw me, you would go, uh, the narrator goes, he in fact does not have athletic ability, right? Like these things that we sometimes put on a pedestal as this is a man or this is a woman often are more reflective of cultural gender stereotypes than they are rooted in what God says man and women are to be. And so Walker, Walker says, if you as a parent, this is applying to parents, but it's true for all of us, care as much about your son's sporting abilities as you do a sacrificial love for others, your daughter's sense of beauty and fashion more than her nurturing and loving care for others, then that suggests perhaps that you have more of a cultural view of gender than a biblical one. So we need to guard against uh, elevating gender stereotypes above God's given pattern to us of male and female. And yet we can't uh, dismiss what God has said. And ultimately, Adam and Eve, it says they were at ease with who they were and how they were made. In Genesis 2.25, it says they were naked and they were unashamed. It was good. It was beautiful. But that's not the world we live in today. Sometimes we look at ourselves and we're ashamed. We're confused with who we are. We don't feel like God got it right when he made our body one way and we feel another way inwardly. These things are real and it can be real challenges and struggles for people where as, a, as, a, as human, human beings, we often <clears throat> have those things that God has created as good, either distorted, misdirected, even broken by sin. And God is at work restoring those things in Christ. And it's through him that we continually uh, bring ourselves to him. And one day what he's doing now will be made complete. And so we long for the day when we're back to Genesis 2.25, where we're unashamed, we're comfortable with who God's made us to be, confident uh, of how we're made. And yet we recognize the need for compassion, the need for patience, uh, the need to be a church. We say this at TCC. I got this from somebody else. The need to be a church where at the center of everything we do is to treasure Jesus. Jesus is at the center of all that we do. We lift him high. We treasure him above everything else. He is the image of God, and to the degree that we're being renewed into the image of him, we're becoming who God has made us to be. And we also want to be a place where Jesus is treasured above everything, but also where we, we have a safe place where we can wrestle with the questions that we have, the, the struggles that we have. We don't come here to pretend that we're okay. We come here to be honest with one another and honest before God, recognizing that we're not the ones that are supposed to have it figured out, but we're coming to God who has it figured out. A place where there's safety to, to not be okay, to wrestle with those questions, to wrestle with doubts as well as the time and space that's given, that we have no agenda other than God's agenda for you and for me. Jesus plus safety 
plus time, I believe, is a church where anyone can grow in. And at the center of all of that is coming back to God's word to say, God, who do you say we are? What do you say that's wrong with us? What is our hope of fixing this? God created us male and female, and we'll continue to unpack that in the coming weeks as we look at sexuality and marriage in a few weeks uh, in Genesis 2 as well. I'm going to go through these next few quickly because it's going to set us up here in a minute um, in the coming weeks for some other topics. We see, um, fourthly, that we're created to work as stewards. We have this calling to subdue and uh, have dominion over the creation. In Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28, we see, and then uh, as Bryce read before in verse 15, the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, we work as stewards. Uh, we, we aren't the ones that are in charge. Our dominion isn't the dominion to do whatever we want. It's a dominion to care for what God has given us. When you read Genesis 2, you can't help but see how abundantly God blessed Adam and Eve. Right? We're, we're like Adam and Eve in that we get fixated on the one thing God says they shouldn't do, that we miss the beautiful abundance of what he's given them. Right? Like if I take, if I take my kids into the candy store or I'm uh, going through the dad tax you know, at the end of the night, um, it's very fitting that uh, Halloween falls on uh, Reformation Day as well. I heard from uh, one noted my own uh, history, church history professor in seminary said, uh, you know, Halloween reminds us that Martin Luther... Um, on Reformation Day, uh, posted his 95 recess to the, the, the door of Wittenberg Church, uh, protesting the Pope's indulgences of candy corn and Tootsie Rolls, demanding that there be a better way, right? Um, that's not exactly what happened, but it did resonate with my heart when I read that today. Um, that when I take them into the candy store, or I'm going through their candy at night, and they have all this amazing candy before them. If I know my son's allergic to peanuts... And he can't eat my favorite candy, Reese's. And I tell him, you can have all of this candy, but you can't have the candy with peanut butter in it, the thing that will kill you. Am I being an unloving father? Nope. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> it's love that these limits are given. <clears throat> and, uh, and we miss out often on these things as we, we look at creation. And what God has given, he's given them so much that they are to steward what he has given them. Not all of creation was like the garden. He put them in the garden and told them to make the rest of creation like the garden. Develop it. Bring out of it the richness of what I've made. Cultivate it. Uh, to create is what he's calling us to do. It's, it's, it's work. Work wasn't given as a result of the fall, but as a part of God's design. And it was even hard work, but it was work that was good. And then we also see that family is a stewardship, that we're to be fruitful and multiply, that there is the blessing of children and the intention of God to bring together men and women in marriage to create families so that God's purpose can be fulfilled in the earth and that both in our work as well as in our family, we are stewards, not the captain of our soul and of the ship, but of, uh, of under-Roman uh, of, of stewarding what God has given us uh, and bringing, into, uh, bringing about uh, what God intends from what God has richly given us. <clears throat> and then we're also, we see fifthly, created to worship and obey. I, I wish I could unpack all of this, and maybe we'll come back to this, but uh, the, the imagery of Eden, the Garden of Eden, matches later on in the Bible what we see of the temple. The temple language later on in the prophets reflects the creation language. And the idea is that Eden is a cosmic temple. And, and humanity is put in the cosmic temple to, to worship. The, the idea of to keep and to, um, to work it and to keep it in Genesis uh, 2.15 is used later as priestly language of what the priest did in the temple. Uh, this idea of worship that goes into it. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever man does, he's to do it to the glory of God. In the same way, God's given us work to do as stewards, but that work is ultimately worship. We're designed to worship God Independence on him, that's what verses 16 through 17 give us, that we're designed not only to worship, but to worship through obedience. We're designed to obey God, not to be autonomous, not to be independent, but to be dependent. 
And, and I bring this together because we live in a world, we talked about this in our equip class. We have two weeks left if you haven't been in it. We'll talk about redemption these coming two weeks and new creation on the final week. Um, but when we think about how God has made us, we often we misunderstand that freedom doesn't mean no limitations. Freedom means embracing God's limitations for us. That's what he's doing in verses 26 through 28. He's giving limitation that leads to freedom. To, to not uh, claim to, to know what's right and wrong in our own eyes, but to be dependent on God brings about the ultimate freedom. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And what does he say? Take my yoke upon you. It's what they would put on the oxen to do the work in the field. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And First John, it says that God's commandments are not burdensome to us. Here's, here's, here's why it matters. Ultimately, we're going to see in Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve choose to do what's right in their own eyes. They take of the tree, thinking that they can, they can do what God uh, alone can do. And here's, here's the contrast. If we obey, obey our own rules, we'll bear a heavy burden, and in the end, enslave ourselves to our desires. If we, if we obey our own rules, we'll bear a heavy burden, and in the end, enslave ourselves to our own desires. But here's the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of what God has done in Christ for us. If we obey God through faith in Christ, we'll bear a light load. And in the end, no true freedom. See, I joked about Reformation Day, but as we look back in history and remember that the Reformation pointed us to justification by faith alone. That we're saved not on the basis of faith plus works, but on the basis of faith and the finished work of Christ. That finished work, the, the grace and, and gratitude and humility that flow from receiving grace produces in us a life of obedience. And that obedience is work unto God, but it's a light burden that leads to true freedom. And then finally, we are created for community. We're not meant to be alone. It says in Genesis 2.18, we see that marriage is central to God's ordering of creation in Genesis 2.24 through 25. And as an extension, we see that family is then central to God's ordering of creation. And this is God's intention in the beginning. We know we live in a fallen world. Marriage isn't ultimate. We ultimately see that the most perfect human being that ever walked the earth was Jesus and he wasn't married. Uh, singleness isn't a curse. Singleness isn't a, an inability to fulfill God's purpose and in, in creation and in redemption for you. And, and yet we're reminded that it's God created the world, that marriage is honored, and he calls us to honor marriage. But here's what's beautiful in Jesus. The gospel tells us that everyone is meant to find themselves in relation to family, either a biological and marital family, which is a gift that God gives some, Ultimately, we all have a biological family to the degree that we enjoy that relationship, uh, you know, can be can be questioned. I, I'll form the line and go first on that account. But whether if it's not our biological and, and marital family. What God has done in Christ is he's given us the family of God. And everyone who comes to him comes as a child of God and is given brothers or sisters in the family of God. We're created for community and we'll see how that unpacks in a moment. But all of it leads us to Christ, who, as Second Corinthians 4 reminds us, <clears throat> in verse 4 it says, <clears throat> In this world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Who are you? You're who God made you to be, and you're who God in Christ has redeemed you to be and bring you back to himself. To the degree that you're not experiencing that today, I say come to Jesus. Reflect on Jesus. To the degree that you're wrestling with the reality of who maybe God created you to be, I say this is a place where Jesus is everything, where you've got plenty of space, and lots of time for doing exactly what God wants to do in your life. Come grow with us. God made us in his image, male and female. He made us. He made us for our good, for his glory. And the only thing we need to do is to look to Jesus to get ourselves thinking about that rightly.